Hello, and welcome to the Kind of Crunchy podcast. I'm your host, Heather Nally, and I'm on a journey to eat a little cleaner, live a little greener, and transition our conventional family farm to more regenerative practices. If you're interested in more eco-friendly tips for your home or farm as well, then you are in the right space. Stay tuned for more Crunchy Little Bites. Hey guys, welcome back to the Kind of Crunchy podcast. I'm Heather Nally, your host, and today I wanted to pop on and share a little more about our journey to food production. So in the past, we have had a rotation of corn, soybeans, and wheat, and sometimes oats. We've also had cattle, then sheep on the farm for several years, and over time, we now just have some laying hens and a couple of noisy roosters. But before I became more involved on the farm, my husband was the one who made the majority of the decisions around the program, meaning what we grew, what inputs we used, such as fertilizer and herbicides. He set up the contracts for the harvest and decided when and where to sell off the livestock when that time came. I pretty much got to help in the barn during calving and lambing seasons, or whenever the cows or sheep decided that the grass actually was greener on the other side of the fence, if you know what I mean. So he began looking for ways to reduce our inputs years ago as the costs started to rise. And it was then that he discovered that some of the latest technology was actually benefiting our soil and reducing the need for some of our other inputs. And thus we entered into our green phase on the farm. So fast forward a few years, um, due to work schedules and other farm demands, we ended up selling off the last of the sheep. And when we did that, it left me to wonder just how much of the rest of what we produced on our farm actually went to food for human consumption. I mean, let's face it, we don't eat that much corn or soybeans. And well, I probably eat too much wheat because I really love my bread, but that isn't the healthiest either, right? So in case you were wondering, what the heck does the corn and the soybeans that we grow end up creating down the road? Well, here's a list. In the markets available to us in our area, this is where the corn and the soybeans go. They go into products called acidulants. What's that? I ask the same thing. It's something that adds taste and stabilization to beverages. Figure it out from there, I guess. Um, a lot of it goes to animal nutrition or meal for livestock. It goes to industrial starches and personal care additives. And sweeteners. That's a biggie. Ever heard of high fructose corn syrup? Yep, that's one of them. Uh, the corn and the soybeans also go to some biofuel, and the flour or the wheat also goes to flour to make baked goods and confectionery products. Again, I do like those, but probably not something I should be eating too much of. So I don't know about you, but after going through that list, it didn't necessarily make me feel all warm and fuzzy about what we were producing in order to feed to humans. And it didn't really feel like we were doing as much good as I had originally thought we were. And yes, the meal that goes to the animals isn't necessarily a bad thing. They need to eat too, but they also need to graze. And I do like my meat, but a lot of the other food products aren't really ones that come to mind when I'm thinking about making healthy choices. So 
as my husband learned more about the health of our soil and how it was improving with some of the changes he was making, he agreed that we also needed to look for some alternative crops to add to the mix. And not just because of the soil health, but also for our bottom line. Because let's face it, if you don't keep producing income, then you won't be producing anything on your farm for much longer. So while he continued his focus on reducing our nitrogen use and enhancing our technology use, I went on the hunt to look for some alternative crops to add to the mix. So while he continued his focus on reducing our nitrogen use and enhancing our technology use, I went on the hunt for new crops that would fit our evolving program. And man, was this easier said than done. Almost every time that I found the perfect crop, and I use air quotes on that, he would give me three reasons why it wouldn't work. Poo on him. But in all seriousness, he was right. So we finally came up with some guidelines that helped me narrow down our real options. Here they are. First, it had to be planted, maintained, and harvested with the equipment that we already had on hand. Because let's face it, if you have to buy equipment just to start something new that you've never tried before, you're already in the hole. Not to mention the seed you have to buy anyway. So, bleh, that knocked out 95% of my ideas. And you were probably thinking, just like I did, why don't you grow green beans or veggies or tomatoes? That seems like the perfect answer. It's a healthy human food. But no, veggie crops retire, uh, require an entirely different set of equipment than our current grain crop equipment that we already had. So that was out. Second, we needed to have a market. It doesn't matter if we can grow it if we can't sell it. And guess what, guys? In this area, the buyers want corn and they want soybeans. So that means I had to look further than the typical market and further than our geographical area to find a buyer for any alternative type of crop, at least for food consumption. Third, we had to be able to store the crop after harvest, or it had to be sold straight from the field and hauled away on a truck, never to be seen or touched by us again. So I'll be danged if he didn't rain on my parade again with that one. Because remember how there aren't any local buyers for alternative crops? That means I needed to find someone who could buy it and then get it to wherever they might need it, which is not nearby. And I know, this sounds like something every business has to deal with, right? Of course it is. It's just something else we had to tag on to our list of requirements. And when you're already dealing with a perishable product, timing is critical for both the harvest and the transportation. It's a logistical minefield. And finally, the last requirement was that the growing season for the new crop needed to fit into the rotation of the corn and the soybeans and the wheat without causing any delay in our program, nor could it cause any health concerns for the following crop. Oof. I mean, enough already. Am I going to do this crop or not? But, okay, I get it. We know what works and we, we know what pays the bills, usually with the corn and the soybeans. So whatever we add into this program really can't jeopardize that. And if anything, it should enhance it. So enter in my bright idea. After searching the interwebs for days and weeks and months, we finally found what I considered to be the ideal candidate to incorporate into our farming program. 
So we finally settled on yellow field peas. And you were probably thinking, what in the world? Why would you choose field peas? How on earth is that fit for human consumption? Here's how. If you've ever gone shopping for a protein powder or picked up a protein bar, take a look at the ingredient list. You just might find that pea protein is listed there. And that pea protein comes from yellow field peas. It's actually quite a good alternative to a lot of the other proteins that, especially whey protein, because it is less allergenic. So if you are in the uh, mode of purchasing a protein product, check out pea protein. You might just like it a little better than what you've had in the past. So long story short, these yellow field peas seemed like they checked all the boxes. First, it was similar, similar enough to soybeans that we already had all the equipment we needed. Woohoo! Second, I found a market. It wasn't close, but we found a contract that allowed for shipping within the region, and we were just at the edge of that region. Third, we could store it if we absolutely had to. But everything needed to be sterilized to avoid cross-contamination with any soy protein. But that was at least doable. And fourth, boy, did this ever fit into our crop plan. Peas grow early in our area, and they also capture more nitrogen than soybeans. So, I mean, I'm feeling pretty good right now. It's a new crop that humans can eat, and it will improve the soil for the next crop. Pretty amazing. So finally, it was time to put our plan into action, and I was so excited. I was probably annoyingly giddy around this whole prospect of growing peas. I think everybody around me probably got sick of hearing about them until we ran into our first hiccup. The seed peas didn't arrive when expected. It wasn't horrible, and it happens, and they finally arrived. So then we began prepping the field for the peas. It was getting real now. I was excited. And then it began to rain. We had to stop and wait it out. Again, no big deal. This happens. It doesn't matter what kind of crop you plant. You have to deal with the weather. But then it got cold. And it rained some more. Now, Peas are resilient to cold weather, we were told. So we thought, okay, what are our options? Maybe we could plant them anyway. Maybe they'll just lay dormant until it's warm enough. Or are they going to rot if we plant them too early? So we contacted all the pea experts we could find and asked them for their opinions. And meanwhile, our window of opportunity is getting smaller and smaller, mind you. We had to get this crop in the ground so that it didn't take away from our next rotation. We were trying to double crop behind it. Everyone thought we should wait, so finally we waited until it dried out enough to finish prepping the field, and we, um, you know, they told us to wait for the temps to warm up a little more, and unfortunately, we had a late season snow ice event heading our way. Well, crap. Here we go again. Two more weeks came and went, and we still had bags of seed peas sitting in the barn, and it was getting depressing, but we still held out hope. And we waited a little longer, and finally, it got dry enough and warm enough that we were attempting to plant, but the ground just still was not fit. We couldn't get the the drill into the field, and if we didn't plant the peas at this point, they weren't going to have long enough to mature for harvest before the summer heat hit in our area, and they wouldn't be out of the field in time for the next round of crops. So my hubby, being the master of making something out of nothing, like most farmers around here, he called in a last-minute idea 
Um, none of the experts had tried this before, so it really was just a shot in the dark. But we hired the local service to load them in a spreader and cover the field in peas. And that part worked. They were pretty evenly covering, covering the ground. And then he gently worked them over the next day to work them in the rest of the way. So finally, we could breathe. The peas were planted. And a week and a half later, it seemed like those efforts paid off. We started to see the little green cotyledons popping up. And then a week or so after that, we started to see some tendrils growing on the peas. That was pretty exciting. And then remember what happened last spring and early summer? Or maybe what didn't happen last spring and summer? Rain. There was no rain. The peas had little to no growth. They just sat there. We tried a health pass to spray on them to give them a little boost. I don't know that it really helped. They just sat there until the rains finally came again later in summer. And they grew a little bit. But at this point, we were past the window of harvest for our double crop. And then we began to harvest the peas. But guess what? The rain was back, and once again it was wreaking havoc, but this time on harvest. The peas would swell, they wouldn't move through the combine, and it finally got to the point that we had a major breakdown that we had to repair, and at that point the peas were done. We had a fraction of the expected yield. So, to most people, and especially farmers, this probably looks like a complete fail. And I'm not sharing this experience as a sob story or to get you to say, oh, you know, woe is me, poor, poor Heather. Rather, I'm sharing it to help you gain a new understanding of the farming industry and what's involved in creating the food that we eat, whether directly or indirectly. And I'm hopefully able to share some insight as to why things don't just change overnight when we try to farm greener. You know, as I mentioned earlier, others might see this as a fail. And it certainly wasn't the outcome we had hoped, but man, did we learn a lot. We now have a handful of ideas on how to move forward. And we have a lot more experience under our belt. And sure, it hurts to lose time, money, and dare I say a little pride along the way. But honestly, if we don't fail from time to time, then we probably aren't trying hard enough. And I'd also like to point out that this experience is a big factor in my decision to even start this podcast. After researching and learning so much last season, I really craved more knowledge about what we could do to keep moving forward on our farm to be greener and to work with Mother Nature rather than against her. So enter in the Kind of Crunchy podcast. This is the exact opportunity for me to learn more about living clean and farming green. And I genuinely hope that it's helping you to do the same. So thanks for listening to my story about one of our projects on our journey to live a little greener or farm a little greener. And I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please remember to like and rate and review the podcast and share it with a friend. Because every time somebody new listens to one of these episodes, they have an opportunity to live a little cleaner. And that can help us all. Thanks.